from VOA Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. Joining me on the program is Mohammed El Shanawi, VOA Senior Analyst for North Africa and the Middle East. Our topic on this edition of the program is Tunisian democracy in peril. Our guest, Amy Hawthorne, Deputy Director for Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy, POMED, and that's a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to examining how genuine democracies can develop in the Middle East and how the United States can best support that process. A Middle East expert with extensive policy and practical experience on Arab political reform and democracy promotion, Amy Hawthorne focuses on Tunisia. She previously served as resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East, where she focused on U.S. policy toward Egypt and U.S. and European strategies to support political and economic reform in the post-2011 Arab world. We'll talk with Amy Hawthorne about the significance of recent events in Tunisia, the one democracy to have emerged from the Arab Spring protests. According to POMED's website, on July 25, Tunisian President Kais Sayed suspended parliament for 30 days, dismissed the prime minister, removed immunity for members of parliament, and announced that he will assume executive authority. Syed's actions followed nationwide protests against the government, particularly in Nahada, blaming it for the country's deteriorating economy and escalating pandemic crisis. President Syed assured the Tunisian public, some of whom support his actions, that these measures were necessary to, quote, save Tunisia, and that they were in accordance with Article 80 of the Constitution. POMED's website goes on to say that, quote, some Tunisians disagree that his moves are constitutional and warn that democracy is at risk, unquote. We'll talk with Amy Hawthorne about the factors that precipitated the crisis, what has unfolded since July 25, international reaction to this apparent setback to democracy, and what may be needed for Tunisia to avoid sliding back into authoritarianism. And Amy Hawthorne joins us via Microsoft Teams. Amy, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm delighted to welcome my colleague, Mohamed El Shanawi. Thank you for having me. So, Amy, let's first start with what is, in your view, the state of play in Tunisia almost 30 days after President Syed assumed executive authority in what many critics say was an unconstitutional move, despite the fact that he cited Article 80 as a basis. Give us a sense of the state of play. Carol, I would point to two main observations that my Tunisian colleagues have shared with me about the state of play. The first key observation is that there does appear to be strong popular support for President Saeed's moves on July 25th to basically, some has described his moves as a self-coup, to seize power and concentrate all powers of government in his hands and to rule according to these sort of exceptional powers that he's given himself, he says, aligned with the Tunisian constitution. So there does seem to be strong popular support for what he has done to basically shake up the scene push out or marginalize, widely seen as ineffective, some seen as corrupt, political elite, business leaders, and to really perhaps reset the Tunisian political system in a way that will work better for most Tunisians who have really been suffering economically and during this COVID-19 
pandemic. So support for him seems to remain very strong. However, expectations on the ground among Tunisians, from what I'm hearing, also appear to be sky high. Many viewing President Syed as a savior, someone who can sweep in and fix all of these complicated problems, socioeconomic problems, corruption, political dysfunction, economic decline that Tunisia has been struggling with for many, many years. Expectations of him are so high and perhaps unrealistically so. That leads me to a third observation about the state of play. It's very unclear to all Tunisians to whom I've been speaking regularly what Paisayed's plans are. What is his vision for Tunisia? How is he going to remake or how does he want the Tunisian political system to be remade? Importantly, how does he believe that Tunisia's economic crisis can be fixed? What are his plans for returning the frozen parliament, letting it resume activity? How exactly is he going to fight corruption? There seems to be a scarcity of details. Certainly the roadmap that President Saeed promised on July 25th would be coming out soon has not appeared. The government isn't functioning normally. There isn't even a full government in place. So there's high expectations, strong support, but an increasing concern among some, perhaps a minority, what exactly are his plans? Does he have a plan? What is his vision? And so it looks like there is a huge amount of uncertainty and opacity about the situation, at least in the presidential palace in Carthage. And very quickly, Amy, can you tell us what actually precipitated the crisis? What was happening in Tunisia? What are the underlying factors that led to protests, disillusionment, and then his move to take this executive authority? It's a very complex situation, and analyzing all the factors that led to this and what precipitated Saeed's actions. But generally, I would say we've had a long building crisis and a more immediate crisis that have built up to make Saeed apparently decide that he had to take these dramatic actions to quote-unquote save Tunisia. The long building crisis is really the fact that a lot of the demands that Tunisians had during the uprising, the revolution in 2011, they revolved around political freedoms and human rights and getting rid of oppression, but they also really were for better economic conditions, more economic opportunity to live with dignity and not be scraping to get by in Tunisia's struggling economy. And those demands have not been met. And so there's been declining living standards, increasing frustration about socioeconomic conditions, and a sense among many Tunisians that the political class that's been governing the country, democratically elected, since 2011 is just unresponsive to those widespread public concerns or simply ineffective or incapable of addressing them. So there have been just long building frustrations with how Tunisian democracy is actually functioning and able to deliver for people. People want better lives, and a lot of people feel that they don't have those and that the change that they were hoping for with the end of the dictatorship hasn't come. The more recent brewing political crisis, I would say a couple of things. One is the pandemic, which initially Tunisia weathered fairly well and then was hit by a couple of serious waves later on and has been one of the worst hit countries in the world by the recent wave of the pandemic. Many, many people getting very sick, many people dying. Most Tunisians knowing a friend, a family member, a colleague who's gotten quite sick and in some cases even passed away. So it's been devastating. 
and the level of frustration about perceived government inaction, incompetence in the face of this disaster, and a perceived uncaring political class, especially in parliament, has made people feel, I think, desperate. The second near-term factor is the election of Kais Syed in fall 2019 as the president. In Tunisia's post-revolution political system, the president has limited powers. Really, it's the prime minister, the head of government, who does more of the day-to-day governing. But Kais Syed came into that role, and he was a political outsider. He had some very distinct, some would say radical, ideas about how the Tunisian political system should be remade. And ever since he has been in power, it's been clear that a political crisis was brewing between him and the parliament about who was going to have the upper hand in Tunisia's political system. He apparently saw an opportunity to act and seize control. Whether he did that because he believed that that was the only way to break Tunisia out of this sort of political gridlock that it was stuck in for months, or whether he is power hungry and saw this as an opportunity to become Tunisia's sole ruler, time will tell. But those are the longer term and more immediate factors that have led to the situation, the crisis that Tunisia is in now. Well, thanks so much, Amy. And I haven't heard the word Enahda mentioned, but I'm sure we'll be talking about that party. But let me turn to my colleague, Mohamed El Shanawi. Uh, Amy, the majority of popular anger in Tunisia seems to be directed at the party as bearing sole responsibility for the stagnation of the country. The president himself is not taking any responsibility and attributes solely to the parties and the parliament the real problem of stagnation. What's your take on that? Well, that's a very good question, Mohammed. It is true that there is a lot of popular frustration, even anger I've seen in recent weeks toward Anahda. Now, why are Tunisians and possibly President Said blaming Anahda more than any other party? I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is that Anahda is the strongest political party in Tunisia since the 2011 revolution. It has been losing votes in subsequent elections, but it still comes out in the parliamentary elections that Tunisia has had in the past decade with a plurality of votes. So it is the party that has done the best electorally compared to all other parties. And it has a plurality of seats in parliament. Its president, Rashid Ghanoushi, is the speaker of parliament and it has participated in or backed all the Tunisian governments that have been in place since the revolution. So at one level, it's natural that people are going to focus their ire and their frustration and their anger on the party that is seen to have had the greatest share of power and has played the relatively biggest role in governance. That's one factor. Another factor is that Anahda, I believe, has not necessarily been responsive to a lot of the demands that many Tunisians have had to really tackle corruption, to really reform the interior ministry to make it less abusive of ordinary citizens. There's still a lot of police brutality and even torture in Tunisia. There are a number of issues like that where the widespread perception is that Anahda has been more interested in protecting its own role in the system, its own privileged place, than in really tackling these problems. And since July 25th, We've heard some prominent Anahda members basically saying as much, you know, we are sorry that we made mistakes. We didn't really listen to the people as much as we should have. 
There's a third factor, which is perhaps not the dominant one, but it is strong, is that there's really a legacy, a strong legacy in Tunisia among some Tunisians of antipathy, distrust toward political Islam, towards Anahda, which of course was demonized, completely outlawed, banned during most of the Ben Ali dictatorship, which was overthrown in 2011. That was a very anti-Islamist quote-unquote secular dictatorship, and Anahda was vilified and basically punished extremely harshly by the dictatorship. And there's a lot of Tunisians who grew up hearing messages or maybe forming their own opinions that political Islam, Anahda, was not to be trusted. Now, Anahda says that they've broken away from political Islam, that they want to be sort of a center-right party that's conservative on social issues. And it is true that they have governed in some cases in a more moderate way than some might have expected while hewing to their strongly held positions on other issues that are more socially conservative. But there is a very strong, I would say, distrust of Anahda among some Tunisians and some who would even like to exclude the party completely from the political scene. And so that is, in my personal view, a danger, that kind of intolerance. Tunisia really can't be a democracy if its most successful or wide vote-getting party is banned from the scene. Now, it hasn't been banned yet, but there are certainly fears of members of Anahda that they're going to come in for a really, really harsh wave of repression. And they have reason to worry based on what they've experienced throughout modern Tunisian history since they've been formed in the early 80s. Another factor that someone I talked to in Tunisia this week mentioned to me is in some of the more sort of working class, less economically affluent areas that they perceive that no one's life has really gotten better since 2011. This is the widespread feeling. It's gotten harder economically. Corruption has become more widespread and people kind of look around in their neighborhood and they see, oh, who is doing better? Who has really benefited from the revolution? Well, that's Anahda because they went from being banned to being, you know, the largest party in parliament in just a few years. So I think there's a resentment there of who is seen to have gained from this democratization process and who is lost. So it's a very complex picture, I would say, of how Tunisians are viewing Anahda. But I would just also close my answer to this question by saying, Mohammed, President Sayed has not had responsibility directly for the problems that Tunisians have been facing over the past year with the economy and the pandemic. In Tunisia's system, handling those issues is the responsibility of the government and of the parliament. And so it's sort of easy for him to escape blame and blame everything that's gone wrong on the people who held the responsibility. And perhaps they do deserve a lot of blame, but he hasn't really had that responsibility of any of these issues. So Tunisians are waiting to see what choices will he make? How is he going to address these overlapping crises that Tunisia is facing? We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guest is Amy Hawthorne, Deputy Director of Research at the Project for Middle East Democracy, a nonprofit policy group based in Washington. I'm Carol Castiel, along with Mohammed El Shanawi, VOA Senior Analyst for North Africa and the Middle East. This is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal Facebook fan, Zacharias Kamil from Ethiopia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com 
or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. And now back to our special guest, Amy Hawthorne. We're talking about Tunisia, and I'd like to turn back to my colleague, Mohamed El Shanawi, for a follow-up. Uh, let's not uh, forget, Amy, the regional influence. In April, Qais Saeed was received with great fanfare by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Cairo. Then Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain sent their foreign ministers to Tunis, backing Saeed's moves, which are conceived as anti-democratic. Why are these countries supporting such moves? I think they're supporting such moves and hoping that Tunisia will become a new dictatorship under Qais Saeed because Tunisia is the only country to come out of the 2011 uprisings as a democracy. A flawed and shaky one to be sure, but a democracy as it is commonly defined in the political sense. And all of these countries whose foreign ministers have come to Tunis to assure President Saeed that they give him their full support, those are all deeply autocratic, deeply authoritarian regimes. So they have something at stake in seeing Tunisian democracy fail, to be quite frank. And more than that, all of these regimes are very, very much against political Islam. And they include Anahda as part of political Islam, even though, as I mentioned, Anahda itself has formally broken away from political Islam, and they run their party saying that they don't have anything to do with Islamism and that they're not political Islamists. But these regional authoritarian regimes do see Anahda as an Islamist movement. The fact that an Islamist movement has been playing a leading role in government in Tunisia for the past decade based on the results of free elections, which none of these countries hold, of course, is something that is very concerning to these authoritarian leaders, particularly in the Gulf and, of course, in Egypt, President Abdel Fattah Sisi apparently sees political Islam as a severe threat to his own rule and to Egypt. So those countries believe that they have really something to gain from doing whatever they can to help Tunisian democracy fail and also possibly removing or helping to remove Anahda from the political scene in Tunisia. My reading of the situation is that while those regional powers certainly have influence and some of them have a lot of money and economic clout, I think that what's going on in Tunisia is really an internal political conflict. I'm not sure, but I think President Qais Saeed views Anahda as a frustrating and failed political actor, not necessarily or maybe not even primarily because he views it as a political Islamist movement, but more because he sees it, in his words, as a sign of the corrupt parties and corrupt political leaders who have been ruling Tunisia since the revolution. So I'm not sure that his interests or his view of the situation in Tunisia really is consistent with the views of these outside countries. I think he seems to be very set, he says, on Tunisian independence and Tunisian sovereignty. So we'll have to see really how much influence those uh, autocratic countries in other parts of the region will have over him and over the unfolding situation. Well, Amy, I see maybe a bit of a silver lining in what you just said. I think no one would be surprised that whether UAE or Saudi Arabia or Egypt would be rooting for the downfall of Tunisia's democracy, the only one to really emerge as a democracy after the Arab Spring protests. But what is the relationship between President Saeed and, for example, Rashid Ghanoushi, the Speaker of the Parliament, the head of the Anahda Party? We recall back in 2013 to 2014, when there was a political crisis, Rashid Ghanoushi 
you know, help to get Tunisia through that? Are they engaged in dialogue? What are the prospects for an internal resolution of this problem? Well, right now, the relationship between President Qais Saied and Nahda, and particularly its leader, Rashid Ghanoushi, relations are not good. There has been a very serious political tension, conflict between the two in Tunisia that some would say has been brewing since results of the 2019 elections, but certainly since earlier in the past year when the two got into a very sort of open conflict about their respective powers and what the role of the president was in Tunisia's current political system and what the role of the parliament was. And there's been a bit of a power struggle. And this power struggle and Thai society's, I would say, kind of disdain for the parliament and in some ways disdain for political parties, apparently, led to a breakdown in communications and a lot of tension between the two personally and the two parts of government, the presidency and the parliament and also the government, that contributed to this gridlock and in some ways brought Tunisia to a political standstill before July 25th. And this standstill, of course, Kais Saied blames it on Anahda, Anahda blames it on Kais Saied, who it says has been trying to create a situation where he can grab more power for himself than he should be able to in Tunisia's current political system. And that gridlock has basically resulted in an inability of anything really to get done to address the economic crisis, to handle the pandemic effectively. So relations between them have not been good. Since July 25th, Anahda initially came out with a very strong statement against what Syed had done and said that his power grab was a coup. They used the word coup and basically suggested that they were going to fight it. Then when it became clear that there was a lot of public support for Kais Syed and there started to emerge this strong kind of public backlash against Anahda from ordinary citizens who are very frustrated with the inactivity and perceived incompetence of parliament, they softened their position and now they've adjusted their rhetoric to be saying we've made some mistakes, we understand the situation that Tunisians are going through, it's very bad, we want to help be part of the solution, certainly not accepting Kais Saeed's moves, but presenting themselves maybe as more open and less kind of strident about what's going on. But Kais Saeed has indicated that he's not interested in a dialogue. Well, what about the role of the United States and European democracies? They've expressed concern over Saeed's move, but then Tunisians say rightly, I believe, that the United States and Europe perhaps has not done enough to support their country over the past decade, you know, leading this lonely battle for democracy after the Arab Spring protests. As we all know, Tunisia was the bright light. And I assume there's quite a bit at stake for the country, the region, and democracy in the Arab world if it is not able to succeed. And right now, it's in this crisis. So what about the role of these external powers, notwithstanding so many other crises facing the world? Broadly speaking, since the Tunisian Revolution, the U.S. and the European Union and key European member states have provided a significant amount of financial and diplomatic support to Tunisia's democratic transition. Certainly, they could have done much more, but the level of support that they've provided, especially from the United States, which at the time of the Tunisian Revolution 10 years ago was providing something like $20 million a year in bilateral aid, and now 
it has grown to a far more significant figure. So the U.S. has done a lot to support Tunisian democracy, particularly in comparison to the level of support that the U.S. was providing before. And Europe has increased its support that it was already providing. It's also true that despite that fairly robust support, at least from the United States, there's a critique, which I think has some merit, that the United States, while trying to be encouraging of Tunisian democracy, didn't pay close enough attention to the growing public anger over the lack of action on corruption and the growing public despair over socioeconomic conditions and people's frustration in Tunisia with how poorly their government was functioning and poorly addressing public demands and concerns. So some Tunisians feel that the U.S. has maybe been a bit too complacent about how Tunisia's democratic transition was going and was tended to focus more on giving positive messages and a bit of cheerleading, not really looking too closely to see what the growing problems were and how the U.S. could really push on those. And I think there's some merit to that critique. Europe, of course, has some interest in Tunisian democracy they also have potentially stronger interests in economic ties in quote-unquote stability. And of course, they profess to be always concerned about the possibility of irregular migration, as they call it, coming through or from Tunisia to Europe. In terms of the U.S. and European response to crisis society's moves since July 25th, the United States has actually shown a fair amount of concern and a fair amount of high-level interest in what's going on in Tunisia. Within days, we had Secretary of State Antony Blinken calling President Kaisasayed and having a long conversation with him about the need to sort of protect Tunisia's democracy and end this exceptional period of rule as quickly as possible. Then after that, we saw National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan also call Kaisasayed and maybe deliver the same message, but perhaps a bit more sharply. And we've seen the number two person, Jake Sullivan's deputy at the National Security Council, John Finer and the Assistant Secretary of State for NEA, Joey Hood, traveled to Tunisia and visit with President Syed and other actors in Tunisia. So these are very, very busy people, mm. and there's a lot of crises going on in the world. And I give them credit. I give the Biden administration credit for showing some fair amount of concern about right. what's going on in Tunisia. With regard to Europe, the reaction has been a little more cautious, a little more wait and see. They're taking a less urgent approach, I would say, than the U.S. So there's a bit of divergence there in the response from the U.S. and from Europe. So, Mohammed, let me turn to you for some of our final questions. Well, approaching the near end of the 50-day suspension of the parliament, Tunisian President Qais Saeed said that the new government would be formed soon according to the will of the Tunisian people and the path they have chosen he said, whoever thinks that we will go back is delusional, referring to reviving the frozen parliament activity. What do you make of that, Amy? What I make of that is that President Kaisayed is in no rush to reopen the parliament. I would be very shocked if the parliament is reopened within this 30-day window. I think it's very likely that he will continue the freezing of parliament and continue his sort of powers and his rule under these exceptional authorities that he's given himself past the 30-day deadline. I would assume he's looking at the polling numbers and seeing their strong public support and probably doesn't feel a huge amount of pressure coming from inside Tunisia to sort of act more quickly to return 
to what the situation was before. And he's also made it very clear when he was running for president since he's been in office and in the past several weeks that he really thinks that a significant remaking of the Constitution, of the Tunisian political system is in order. So I personally do not expect him to be reopening parliament anytime soon. It's also useful for him politically that parliament is so unpopular among Tunisians and has kind of been made this scapegoat for all of Tunisia's problems. And so it's in Kais Saeed, you know, it's good for him politically to keep the parliament sort of in the spotlight as dysfunctional entity. Now, if he continues for a long, some period of time without a parliament, that parliament is duly elected, freely elected, just as President Kais Saeed was. And so Tunisia will cease to be a democracy if one of its freely and fairly elected institutions of government is shut down by the president and stopped from working. It will not be a democracy at that point. And right now, I wouldn't say it's a democracy. Well, here's how The Economist magazine characterizes the situation in Tunisia. It says, quote, Tunisia will not emerge from the crisis looking like Saudi Arabia, but it will probably be a little less democratic, unquote. So we will be following this story with Amy Hawthorne. She's a longtime Tunisia observer, deputy director for research at the Project for Middle East Democracy. Amy, once again, thank you for your critical insights on developments in Tunisia. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Carol and Mohammed. It was a pleasure. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. And joining me on the program was Mohammed El Shanawi, VOA Senior Analyst for North Africa and the Middle East. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.